Statements made in CBD and poetry podcasts have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Non-prescription CBD is not intended to treat, diagnose, cure, or prevent any disease or medical conditions. The CBD and poetry discussion is not intended as medical advice and should not substitute advice from a healthcare professional. Because I don't think that I will try... Um... THC unless or until it becomes uh, legal or the revolution comes one of the two. (laughs) (laughs) What began your path to try or use CBD? Well, I deal with a lot of anxiety And because I deal with a lot of anxiety, because of what I study, basically racial equity in the built environment, uh, it was keeping me up late. (laughs) And um, in addition to taking some breaks from social media and, of course, uh, exercise, which is always great, I was like, okay, well, I needed to at least try something else because Mm -hmm. for a lot of anxiety and depression – which are a result of um, which are a result of dealing with a highly narcissistic system. Uh, I realized that I was going to need something that might temper the anxiety, but not necessarily control um, control my feelings and 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 be too like take the emotional control out of my hands and put it in the uh, hands of a pharmaceutical. And because CBD is natural um, and I knew several people who were using it, that's, I I figured I should at least try it. (laughs) Yet you had friends who had tried it. And what, what was your result? I, well, my result is what was your experience? My experience was that for days when I'd had anxiety attacks mm-hmm. and it would ju- and it just became a little too uncomfortable to deal with and I had to remove myself, it became helpful to kind of get me down to a functioning emotional level where it's like, okay, I'm still anxious, but I'm not so anxious that I can't go to sleep. I can't read. I can't do the things I need to do. Um, it's, I didn't think that it was going to be for me. I don't see it as a long-term solution, but Mm -hmm. I do see it as a, as a temporary fix. And I think that that is what a lot more people are seeing Instead of um, just because of our relationship with the pharmaceutical industry, we're like, oh, well, this this is this is not something that I do on the regular, but this is something because I had tried ashwagandha before. What's that? Ashwagandha is another route that's supposed to kind of basically temper anxiety um, in theory. But uh, but basically it's like, well, those you have to take two or three pills at once. So it's like, you know. You're looking at a good, you're at least a bottle a month. So, mm-hmm. so THC, uh, not THC. This is CBD because uh, <laughs> THC is not legal everywhere. 
Um, but CBD is at least, um, it, it's at least something where it's like, okay, this lasts me for a good 24 to 48 hours. And whether that is both chemical and neurological, I don't care. <laughs> a good, a good two to, a, a good one to two days is, is, is a good time to be like, okay, I'm a little bit more mellow. We'll try um, THC unless or until it becomes uh, legal or the revolution comes one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> well, just so you know, um, there are formulations of CBD where they can have up to 0.3% THC mm-hmm. and that is legal. Anything yeah. more than that would be illegal. That's the law of the land now. Yeah, I don't know about exactly. <laughs> what's going to happen in the future. Now, you were saying that the last time you tried CBD because you're not a regular user, no. you don't want to be no. a regular user. You're basically, from what I hear you say, sometimes when it gets just a little too overwhelming, yes, you want something to, to, to bring it down. Do you mind telling us about what triggered the last time what were you working on Let's the see. last time? Because this is your work. Basically doing networking is what I've found and my experiences with it has been basically about having a lot of inauthentic conversations with a large group of people um, and basically trying to hang on with tenterhooks to some, like, it's not a comfortable socialization. It's basically, I would rather have a one real conversation with one real person than 10 fake conversations with 10 people. I'll see that one time and never again. So the fact that I was then going to go into a, networking situation i i was just like you know what i need to come home i need to get into my safe spot and it's probably going to be a little bit for me to get to sleep tonight and so um and so that's that was the last time i used it i'm intrigued when you say an authentic conversation what qualifies certain conversations as being inauthentic to me if If you're not like, (laughs) because, because basically the point of, in my opinion, many networking conversations are designed to basically get something out of somebody, but not necessarily establish any kind of emotional connection with them. And there are lots of people who are better at that than I am, and I completely accept that, and that is not what they see out of networking, but because a lot of the networking events that I've been to at the past, uh, they've been very expensive, they've been, there's been a lot of gossip and unhealthy conversation in the background, and it's been a business card, um, uh, five, business card extravaganza it's like you know all of those things cost money and when you feel like you're going to go into a situation where it's like 
we all have money. We all understand we all have money. And the only people who would feel uncomfortable at this sort of thing are people who are not worthy enough of being in our presence. And that's very uncomfortable because many of the people that I know, and including myself, do not have a lot of money. And so the and and so basically going into a situation where it's like the assumption is we all have money, we all have a lot of money, <laughs> and if you don't have money, you're not really worthy of participating in this conversation. It's not comfortable for me. And so uh especially since a lot of my research and a lot of my um a lot of my writing has dealt with the working class and uh populations in America that are marginalized for no good reason. And so you know, the the clash of those two uh, experiences, it's now I went to Yale. So I so I know that, you know, wealthy people are still, you know, they're they're capable of feelings. But uh, but at the same time, it's like they are inherently trained to go to events like these and get connections and too many of those connections have led to exploitation. And so to, and so I associate networking with exploitation. And so when it becomes a conversation about exploitation, it's like, okay, but you're not being exploited, but basically sometimes it just goes too far to this is about to be about exploitation and it makes me very uncomfortable and I don't want to be here anymore. And so when I came back from that, I was like, oh, okay, this is okay now. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been to other networking things. I think it's largely because they're more on my terms and they're smaller and they're not. And the assumption is not that everybody has money. Uh, the assumption is that, you know, there are just two people who don't necessarily know anything about each other who are engaging with each other for the purpose of learning something that to me is healthy networking, but some networking events that are anonymous and cost money. It's just, it's not, it, it's not comfortable for me. Kind of like the last democratic debate was $1,750 per person. That's, that's not designed to, engage a populace that's designed to say look at me i've got two grand i can pop and listen to people who can buy presidencies that was the one with uh, bloomberg so now i would like if you can tie some concepts together because not all listeners are going to have a working knowledge of what the built environment is uh, and yes. your concern with how that is being exploited. So basically a good primer for that would be segregated by design. It's a 17 minute film and it talks about how different uh, racial groups in cities have been separated but that's been by design. Uh, the built environment is basically any area with a local government, like a city, like a town. And uh, you could say country, but most people understand the built environment as the city that they live in, the neighborhood that they live in. And so, but cities, basically cities and towns, because 
even though it's in the middle of nowhere, it's still a built environment. Uh, usually it relies on infrastructure of some sort, where whether it's water or power or sewage, very popular. And it's how human beings basically understand community. We understand communities in the forms of neighborhoods and um, housing developments, apartment complexes. All of those are part of the built environment. They also happen to come with a lot of politics, i.e. displacement, and uh, that a lot of people call gentrification. And the inequity that is most obvious about the built environment is the fact that the autonomy of some is rewarded more than the autonomy of others. For example, in the city of Austin, the Urban Renewal Agency was created through election by homeowners. You literally could not vote on er, on the er, creation of the Urban Renewal Agency in the city of Austin if you did not own a home. Well, that's all well and good. However, in 1959, of course, that was after several black people had lost their um lost their homes because the city of Austin said by decree you will go over here now it was it's by it's where a lot of land had already been lost because cities were now allowed to plan and basically say okay black people go over here and um and recently discovered because I don't like to speak for people that um there were items such as the Mexican park and hospitals like Brackenridge where they said there should be a specific ward for black and Mexican people because we don't want them mixing with the rest of the population. A special ward? A special ward, yes, ma'am. And so, and these are in, and these are not, you know, in the archives that you have to get with a lamp at the bottom of a building somewhere. These are online in public records. If you look at city council records, if you look for, uh, if you look for the term uh, Mexican, because I was trying to figure out, well, how did certain parts of Austin get formed? How did, you know, what, how did, how was their segregation um, orchestrated? And because I had already done a lot of research on the black part of town, since, you know, I happen to be black, I, uh, this time I was doing a search on what is, what we now understand to be Chicano, but because you have to, understand a little bit about the history of racism what was then called mexican you would uh, you search for mexican in city records and they say okay well this is the mexican park and this is the mexican neighborhood and this is the mexican and you know it's seeing how that was orchestrated and then the city having to decide oh well urban renewal means federal funds but we can't just let's let's have an election, but let's make sure that the people who bring about this agency that we really want so we can get federal funding are definitely on our side. Well, how do we do that? Ah, well, then what about make sure they're all homeowners now? Don't get me wrong. There were definitely still 
black and uh, Chicano homeowners at the time of this election in 1959. But the majority of homeowners in the city of Austin in 1959 were white. So basically the autonomy was taken away. And by the way, it didn't matter that there were black and Chicano homeowners. A lot of their neighborhoods and a lot of their homes were determined as slums and blight, which is what urban renewal was about. So they were bulldozed to the ground anyway, even though they had the right to make a vote and say, "Uh, no, we don't really want this urban renewal agency. And I think it's one of the reasons why people are particularly disgusted by the consequences of displacement in the city of Austin today, because a lot of the displacement that's occurring now is not as a result of that 1959 election. It's not even the result of the 1928 master plan, even though everybody just moans with ecstasy when they say the master plan, because they love it because it was 1928. And that's almost, and it's almost a hundred years ago. It happened because of then mayor Kirk Watson and the, Nonprofit Save Our Springs got together and decided to create a quote unquote new vision for East Austin, where basically nobody in East Austin had any voices, homes were not preserved, uh, history was not preserved, and they told very little of the story that happened. And so now Many of the people have been displaced. Uh, they can't afford to live there. Housing, uh, their housing valuations are through the roof. So they have high taxes. But any house that's not modified is, of course, worth less until it's scraped and a million dollar home put on it. So that's where I live. Um, and of course, in uh, an- another urban renewal project. Technically it's not urban renewal, but it has the effect of being urban renewal is domain Riverside, which is going to basically say, Oh, well, there's nothing over there and there's no one over there. So we're going to put the Southern corollary to the Northern domain off of Riverside because it's close to downtown and that's where people want to live and that's where it's happening and that's what's exciting. And it's basically, again, not seeing the autonomy of the people who lived here. And a lot of people said, no, we don't want that. We live here. We can afford to be here. I don't understand. But the inequity has allowed the local government to basically dispense with respecting community engagement here because we don't make as much money as um, other parts of town. So when you say that the history wasn't preserved, you're talking about the people who could not afford to preserve their history? People who could not afford to preserve their history. Uh, Two great examples are the Black Firehouse that used to be off of 11th Street, East 11th Street, that in the 1970s, an organization called Community United Front 
which was a black power organization, wanted to buy the building so that they could make a daycare because why wouldn't you want a daycare <laughs> in a residential neighborhood? Uh, the city council did not approve of that. In the city of Austin, there was also a historically Chicano university because just like black people had universities, Chicano people had universities as well because segregation and we weren't allowed to go to the same places. It was called Juarez Lincoln. It was actually called Antioch uh, Juarez Lincoln University. And the university shut down because as integration occurred, everybody was like, okay, well, you know, it's, we, we can't maintain all of these universities and we don't have, of course, the revenue because not everybody's going to college. And then people just decided, well, we don't need this building anymore. And they're like, I'm sorry, there's murals, there's this, there's that. There was actually a lot of protest when it was time to um, decide whether or not Juarez Lincoln could stay or not. And the city was like, mm, no. And it was torn down. There is, however, a Denny's that's there now. And that's important. We want to make sure that there's as many Denny's and IHOPs in the country as possible, but not historically Chicano universities, apparently. And so now you know what is preserved beyond all logic? A golf course in West Austin. Not because it was actually integrated, but because Black people were there sometimes. So it's an integrated golf course. And that, again, is the problem with uh, visibility in terms of racial movements. There are so many nonprofit organizations, it gets a lot of protection. And so that history is considered worth preserving, just like the Hyde Park neighborhood that had a racial covenant not to include Black people in it was also preserved because we want the character of that neighborhood preserved. But slums and blights in East Austin were torn down and there's, again, we'll never get the first black firehouse in Austin back. We'll never get the historically Chicano University back. And it's what, it's why a lot of racial activists are now saying, you can keep your apologies. There are tangible consequences to this malicious, malicious behavior. And if you're not really interested in tangible restoration for tangible consequences, you're not really interested in trying to move towards a restorative future. Okay. So when you go to, just to circle back to mm -hmm. our beginning of our conversation, right. when you go to these conferences or networking opportunities oh, yes. <laughs> to talk about the built environment and the network and the conversation is about to be um, based on the built environment, you're going from a perspective of race. That is the lens that you are going. Is that the lens that the network itself 
Oh, do we talk on... about race? Do we talk about race? Oh no, we don't. We don't talk about race. This what? is a, this is about houses. No, no, we don't need all that conversation. We don't. No, 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 no. We just we just want to talk about. Don't you want this park to look nice again? Don't you want this school to have its proper usage? No one wants to have the racial conversation, and we don't want to have the racial conversation because it is an uncomfortable reality. It is the same reason why whenever you mention to a lot of white people that slavery still exists, they say, well, I never owned slaves. And we all know that that's a disingenuous conversation because we all wear clothes that are manufactured in sweatshops. We all eat food that is grown by migrant labor in a continuation of the Braceros program that we quote unquote don't have anymore. Um, so we just call them criminals, even though Sanderson farms and Dole really, really need them to keep our food prices low. And of course we have um, Samsung and Apple and both, uh, both are companies who've been discovered to be using uh, an oldie but goldie African slave labor. And so saying that you're talking about the built environment from a racial perspective reminds people that, number one, we still live in segregated communities. Number two, that some people benefit from segregation, but most people don't. And people don't like to remember that we live in segregated communities. And even though... A lot of people like myself like to live in neighborhoods where everybody's there uh, because I do. I, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, wouldn't you like to live in an all black community? I'm like ambivalent about it because no matter how beautiful a prison is, it's still a prison. So I would much rather live in a neighborhood where everybody is. I'd rather live in a world where everybody has autonomy rather than say, well, yes, you can have all the amenities of the built environment, but number one, they can be taken at any time by force from you. And number two, uh, people will basically devalue you as a human being because you come from that area. And people, people say, well, that's, that's not really understanding the history. And it's like, no, there were beautiful black communities. And the black community has been resilient for hundreds of years. But the reality is that we have never experienced full autonomy, which is one of the reasons why they are now having conversations about black citizenship as a result of the Dred Scott decision. But that it wasn't recent. No, it doesn't matter that it wasn't recent, nor was the Constitution. <laughs> but because we are, we are so ensconced with this idea of Black people are neither people and they're not citizens, having any segregated community, even when we run all the banks, all the businesses, all the schools, it's to always be under threat from the outside world. So it's one of the reasons why 
No, I don't. I I don't agree with segregation. I don't think that anybody truly understands that segregation didn't really even become an official law until cities planned it that way in 1926 and 1928. That, like, people just lived where they could live and just lived their lives. Uh, That's why there were freedom colonies all over the place. That's why uh, people were just living and growing and having their communities and why there was a Chicano University in downtown Austin because everybody just lived our lives in the history on the uh, university because I because it's definitely I definitely know that it was there through the 60s 50s through the 70s but I don't remember it was there before then um but it was only because segregation became signed into law that we then said okay well now you can be moved over here and you can be moved over there and you can be this and you can be that. So it's like, no, I'm not pro segregation. Mm-hmm. So to bring this conversation to a close, I asked you, how did you basically cross paths with CBD? Yes. And then you've told us all of this heavy <laughs> <laughs> Thought-provoking. So how do you deal with all of that? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) of of basically you're looking at the built environment through the the perspective of race. And when you talk about inauthentic conversations, is that because you can't get another person to really talk about a full... Because people really perspective exactly it's like they see um let's see what's a what's a really good example um they are planning a bridge mm-hmm. from the park right next to Fiesta Gardens um that goes across to Oracle. Why are they planning that? There's not any clear answer because they are about to. It make the it fortify the walkway across Pleasant Valley from, uh, I guess, the North Bank to the South Bank of Town Lake. But they're building this walkway. They're like, oh, it's a neglected park. It's not a neglected park. Any time of the year, <laughs> there's always people in it and there's always people doing things. I've never seen that park empty. I'm pretty sure if I went there at about... 11 o'clock on a Tuesday, I'd see somebody there. Uh, But one of the things that was stated in a video done by Larry Ellison was that he wanted to build a company site that would be the kind of site that he would want to go to. Some background, Oracle located on the South Bank of Town Lake in 2015 to 2016 that's when it basically finished and in this video he talks about how oh and I would love to bring my kayak to work every day so because there'll be a nice little walkway and this man who saw a pretty lake and some land and who pretended like there was nothing on the south bank of Riverside 
wants to bring his kayak, that's why we need to build a nice little walkway. So you tell people this and they say, oh, but it was a neglected park because that's how it was marketed in newspapers like the Chronicle and the Statesman. They're like, oh, nobody was there and it was awful and it was ratchet. And it was like, there were murals and baseball parks and there there are murals and baseball parks right now um and recreational facilities the odyssey school is there it's not clear to people that basically this area is considered up for grabs because the people there are not from tarrytown and they're not from west austin and many of them are not white, even though it has been, even though the neighborhood has been extremely displaced in the last few years, there's still quite a few non-white people who live in that area and they like their park. <laughs> um, it's, it's not considered important enough that that community remain intact than it is to quote unquote, see the improvement. And so to have those conversations with people, they're just focused on, but it'll be a really pretty sidewalk, but it'll be a really pretty building. Oh, but this person will bring a whole bunch of jobs here. And you can't, you can only have so many conversations where everybody was like, oh, but it was horrible before, especially about a community that they didn't live in, that it becomes stressful. And so it's one of the reasons why, like I said, on occasion, it's like, you know what? I'm a little too angry and it's 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> so let me do something to relieve myself of the stress, of this anxiety, of the fact that it doesn't seem like any conversation people are, are having, any information they're being relayed is making them understand the depths of how race has shaped the built environment. It is not just happenstance. Race is the reason, you know, there's a great meme that goes around Facebook and it says, you know, you look around neighborhoods every now and then and you're like, I wonder what it, what made this neighborhood the way it was. And then you find out it's racism in like 72.5 and you get really frustrated and sad. And that is how our built environment has been shaped. Uh, you know, could tell you more stories. I won't because we'll all get angry and sad. But, but no, understanding that the built environment as we understand it was largely shaped by racism is a very hard conversation to have. And so I enjoy the fact that there are coping mechanisms other than exercise and not paying attention to the news. Racism causing insomnia, surrounded by fake people, networking with the alleged like-minded, yet divided by money. New Vision turned a blind eye to indigenous cultures and history, gushing about beautifying the environment because no one supposedly lives there without seeing the existing community. Seeing a people isn't the same as engaging with a people. Apologies just won't do. 
restorative justice will. Both the so-called good neighborhoods and the so-called bad neighborhoods were built on a foundation of racism. The 1920s roared with planned segregation. Nowadays, it's no longer segregation. It's urban renewal.